Well, the second lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Hear these well-known verses. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would have gladly filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off. And he went to his father, but while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and he put his arms around him and kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slave, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now... His elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry. And he refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you. And I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. 
Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, this is a beloved text. It's a wonderful text that we return to over and over again in our faith and probably one of the texts that our friends who maybe have not heard scripture often in their life, even a text like this would become familiar to them. It's a story that is told over and over and over again. And there are many ways to look at this story. We can look at the story from the perspective of the son who goes away into the far country and then is seen by the father and returns. We can look at this story from the perspective of the elder brother who remains on the outside of the party and doesn't allow himself to go in because of his own inhibitions and willingness to understand the length of the father's grace. And we can also look at this story from the perspective of the father. Because this is a story about a father who has something to give away. And it's a story about a father who keeps giving it away over and over and over again. And a father who even in the face of death still offers his very being. And this story remains timeless because what it continues to teach us is what it looks like when the most powerful person in the story, when the person who is able to make all of the decisions, when the person who holds all of the authority, when the person who has all of the power in the world within the landscape of the story, when that person chooses to be generous, the outcome is what we have in this story. We so rarely have stories like this within our culture. We often don't even really know what generosity can look like. And even in this story, we've made the most sense of it by calling it the story of the prodigal son rather than holding to be the central and pivotal figure this figure who puts this whole thing in motion by actually obliging at the very start to his death. Because that is where the story begins. It begins with the death of the father. When the most powerful figure in the household, in the whole economy of this landscape of the story, in the economic chain of resources, when this person agrees to end his life in order to make space for the life of his sons, that is where this story begins. And the story asks us, by creating this as the beginning, the story asks the reader, and first century readers would have picked up on this, who does this? 
The story never begins with the most powerful person in the world giving everything away. That's just not where stories often start. And so Jesus has the attention of his readers because that is, in fact, where this story starts. It's unthinkable, almost even absurd. It would be like Howard Schultz giving Starbucks over to Lucius Malfoy. Or it's like Jeff Bezos handing the keys of Amazon over to a 20-something Hugh Hefner. We just don't do this, right? It's just not something that happens within the landscape of our world. And when it does, we read those headlines as if they're ridiculous. It's the stuff of midnight pub talk. What if? Well, that's the story that Jesus gives us today. He gives us the what if story. What if the father, in fact, obliged to the request and gave it all away? Then what? And that's the story that we have. There is a radical craziness to this story, a sense in which if you heard it for the first time, you would be thinking, who is this father? Is this person actually good? Does he want what's best for the sons? Or is he up to something almost malicious and maybe a little bit comical? See, that's the question that the first century hearers would have been thinking about because you have to consider what's really at stake. Because a good father, at least within the landscape of the story, a good father is in charge of his son's future. Keep in mind, the father in this landscape, in this context, is the only one who can actually own the property. He's the only one who can secure the resources. And so the father is the only one in the story who actually has any power. And a good father in the first century would have made sure that the inheritance was preserved. A good father would have taken care of his family at every turn and would come to his final days knowing that he could that he has preserved the inheritance and that he could, in fact, pass this on to his family with good conscience. But this is exactly the story that Jesus is turning on his head. And he does this by asking the question at the very beginning, what if the Father gives it all away? What if the Father was generous? Not just generous, but radically generous. What if the father gave away everything he had, even his very being? What would happen then, the story asks us? Would everything, in fact, fall apart? Or, or does this radical generosity that the father exhibits in the beginning, does this actually create an opportunity for there to be change within the universe of the story? See, that's the question that Jesus is trying to lift up. Does generosity change the world? And if so, how does it happen? Put another way, he's asking, Can generosity do something in the world that preservation cannot? Can can generosity do something in the world that preservation cannot? Because see, when the younger son 
asks for the property of the father, when he asks for his inheritance, he's not simply asking for money. And those who have read this story before, I'm sure that we all have some familiarity with that. He's actually asking for the very being of the father, the very life of the father. And when you read the story in Greek, this is made, this is sort of highlighted because the text, the word that is used within the lexicon for is inheritance is the word bion, B-I-O-N, from which we get words like biology or biosphere. And so it's very clear when you're reading this text within the Greek New Testament that the son is not saying, hey, just give me the resources. The son is saying, give me your very life. And so the question itself begs for clarity for the father, who does this? Who does this? Give me your very life. And the father says yes. The father says yes. And he agrees not just to offer the property, as the text leads us to understand, but he agrees, in fact, to offer his very lifeblood, the very being of who he is, his substance. And in doing this, in doing this, the father puts himself in a position where he has no more power and no more authority to determine what happens in the story. All of the agency is given over to the sons. Everything. And so it seems that as the story unfolds, we learn more about the power of generosity itself. It seems that what Jesus is perhaps helping us to explore or what he's poking from telling this story is that generosity alone has the power to change the heart. Generosity alone has the power to change the core. Generosity alone has the power to actually change the life of another. And of course, the only way that we learn this is by going down the road of two folks who experience this generosity, but who experience it very differently. One squanders the property in dissolute living. And another way of reading this, by the way, is that he scatters the substance of his being in a direction that is null and void. We have this word substance for the, the idea of his living. He's, he's just sort of put his living everywhere. And the word dissolute is actually the word a-sozo. So if you think about the word for salvation that we've been talking about, which means wholeness, healing, restoration, harmony, the word a is in front of it to negate that word. And so what the writer is telling us is not that he's just made all these bad decisions, sort of from a moral perspective, but he's actually spent his life on that which does not give him any wholeness at all. That's what the dissolute living actually means. He's literally letting the substance of his life fall apart. And that's one way we learn through the life of this story, the life of this text. That is one way to handle generosity, is to make the mistake that you think that it's all about individual wealth. 
But the story helps us to understand that it's not. See, individual wealth is finite, but generosity is not. Generosity is not. Now, the other son who experiences the father's generosity, we later learn, refuses to enter into the celebration of life. He remains angry. He remains outside. He uses this simple moral arithmetic for making sense of the father's love. I've done everything you wanted. You didn't give me a goat. Um, All of that sort of simple moral arithmetic, right? And we get that within our culture, too. I mean, you can just think about how that shows up. You play by the rules. You still didn't get what you wanted. You do everything right. You still end up with a relationship that didn't end up the way you wanted it to. There's a lot of things where we think if we can just play the game, it will work out in our favor. But that's the elder brother. It's the elder son. And Jesus says, no. See, he ends up blaming the father for everything that has happened to him. But the secret to this text is that we learn from the very beginning of the story that the property was divided amongst them and the father no longer has any stake in what it is that happens. He gave it away. Did the elder brother miss the memo? Possibly. He can't even see it. And he refuses to understand that the generosity actually extends to him too. And that's one of the other ways that we can handle generosity. Is that we could ignore it. We can pretend like it doesn't exist and we can still choose to live within a world of scarcity. And it doesn't say anything about the world around us. It says something about the world inside of us. You see, one son uses the generosity as a means of personal wealth. And it happens even to his own detriment. But the other son refuses the generosity entirely because he erroneously believes that if he were to acknowledge it, that it would throw into balance, throw out of balance, the safe moral universe that he had created. And neither one of these outcomes are sufficient. Because neither one of these outcomes allow the generosity of the Father to actually change them. And I think that that's the reason why ultimately in this story that we celebrate the outcome of the prodigal. And the reason why we long for the reunion of the older brother is that we are all rooting for a universe where generosity can actually change the game. You see, that's what we're rooting for. And Jesus helps us to get to the core of that by providing the story that gives us access to what it looks like when generosity actually takes shape within the world. Because that is what Jesus is saying, that generosity can change the game, and that it does so by actually turning the game on its head. And all of a sudden, the one that was supposed to be the executor of the estate is no longer the executor of the state, but he is in fact the one who has started to become rooting on the sidelines for his sons not to gain the inheritance, but to come to life. That's what he wants. 
I don't care how much you have, he's saying, but are you alive? Do you know that I have given you not just my resources, but my buy-on, my life? Friends, I wonder if you have lived in a world where generosity changes the game. I wonder if you've had the opportunity to see and experience that. I wonder if you've had the opportunity to insert radical generosity into another person's life so that it can, in fact, turn the game on its head. I wonder. I wonder if you have lived in a world not where you live by the economy of scarcity, but by the economy of generosity, where you do not measure what you see in terms of finite wealth, but you measure what you see in terms of what the Father has given you, which will never, ever, ever, ever run out. And what is the season of Lent and the road to the cross if not for generosity? Yes, there is suffering on the cross, there is, but there is also generosity. And if we look at that cross as we approach Good Friday and we just see it as a sign of suffering, we will miss the point of that suffering because the point of the suffering is that God chooses to offer God's self in generosity. That God chooses to put the very well-being of the human experience as the forefront of what God is up to in everything that God does. And that ultimately is not about us, but it is about God's love for us, and it is a sign of endless generosity. So friends, as we make our way through the rest of Lent, we have an invitation to pay attention to the generosity that has changed the game within our lives and to figure out how we live always as a people of generosity. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for this text. We thank you how it invites us to turn the game on its head. We ask that as we move through the rest of this season, that you would speak to us at every turn, calling us forward into deeper generosity. In your name, amen. Friends, let us stand.